1950s. Uh, there have been dozens of books and hundreds of articles, uh, sometimes written from a supposedly Christian perspective, uh, that tell us how to build our self-esteem or our mates' self-esteem or our children's self-esteem. Uh, we've been assured by the supposed experts on human behavior that low self-esteem is at the root of all dysfunction in emotional and relational problems in life. Uh, the self-esteem movement has transformed much of America, and perhaps this is no more evident uh, than in the arena of our schools. There was a brilliant article titled, When Praise is Dangerous, in the February 2007 edition of New York Magazine, that provides a fascinating glimpse into why the movement, self-esteem movement, is crashing and burning. And I quote, it said, since 1969 publication of the psychology of self-esteem, in which Nathaniel Brandon asserted that self-esteem was the single most important facet of a person, the belief that one must do whatever he can to achieve positive self-esteem has become a movement with broad societal effects. And see if some of these things sound familiar. He said anything potentially damaging to kids' self-esteem was axed. Competition was frowned upon. Soccer coaches stopped counting goals and handed out trophies to everyone. Teachers threw out their red pencils and criticism was replaced with ubiquitous, even undeserved praise. Author Melody Phillips also has written on the subject about the decline of the self-esteem movement and how it failed us uh, as a culture. And she offered a critique of the movement in her book entitled, which I just the title intrigues me. I want to read this. The, the book of, uh, was entitled All Must Have Prizes. And she revealed achievement in all areas was being replaced with exercises intended to boost self-esteem. Every player on the team is to receive a prize and all prizes have to be equal. She put it this way in her 2003 book. She said, surely, I love this, in the immortal words of John McEnroe, you cannot be serious, what she said. Alas, the latest pronouncement from those in charge of our exam system is truly beyond satire. The new idea for boosting examination success is to abolish the very idea of failure, along with the difference between right and the wrong answer to a question. Surely you cannot be serious was her uh, conclusion on that idea. And then a more recent article, uh, as I was searching this week, found one in Parent Magazine. And the Parent Magazine had an article in the June 2012 edition on the subject of self-esteem and the, the, how the movement has failed. And here's what it said. So there's a line where self-esteem tips over into superiority and dominance in the false assumption that one is better than the other. Those squelched weaknesses got covered up uh, with braggadocio and, and creates a false esteem that leads to condescension, superiority and power struggles in friendships and other relationships. And th this is a great statement. It said self-esteem without self-knowledge is arrogance. It can stop children from persevering towards the defined goal when the going gets tough because false self-esteem is superficial and doesn't allow one to access the deep reserves that true self-worth can provide. And so even non-Christians writing from the perspective often of humanistic psychology have come to the conclusion that the self-esteem movement that started uh, in 1969, the publishing of that work, has kind of failed us as a society. It's not produced uh, the intended results of this uh, kids growing up and going into adults. They're you know, just eradicated dysfunction. There's confidence and all those things. As a matter of fact, many writers went on to conclude this, that it actually has produced a generation of arrogance and entitlement. It's produced a generation that lacks 
humility. And they're speaking of my generation. Thankfully, I've escaped all those negative attributes. And so, but for others, for others, a whole generation could have been spared this entitlement and this arrogance and this false, falsely elevated view of self. If psychology and sociology had just looked to the wisdom of Scripture instead of the wisdom of the world at that time. Because do you realize this? There's not a single verse in the Word of God that tells us to build our self-esteem. Not one. As a matter of fact, the Word of God over and over spurs us on to have a view of humility. And the word for humility actually means lowliness of mind. And so the biblical prescription for having an accurate view of self is not not to falsely elevate self-esteem. It's to grow in humility, to think of others better than yourself, to be looking out for the needs of others before your own needs, to have lowliness of mind. And that is not a parallel with what's been taught in culture. It is a polar polar opposite. And so the question is, how many books have you came across lately uh, that, that decry self-esteem for, for the sake of humility and teach you to lower your thinking about yourself? The answer is this only one. But thank God that one is the source of wisdom. And so we're going to look this morning at the example of humility and lowering yourself for the sake of others uh, in Philippians chapter two, verses five through eleven. Philippians chapter 2, if you have a Bible, you can turn there. If not, uh, the text will be there on your screen. You can follow along with me. So you see, I'm actually preaching out of the Bible, not just telling stories and opinions, okay? Philippians chapter 2 is one of those foundational verses and passages in all of the New Testament. And hopefully you'll see that here in just a little minute. It's Jesus provides the ultimate example of humility, all right? Let's pick up the text in chapter 2, verse 1 this week, just to set the context, context uh, in case you weren't here last week. Philippians chapter 2, verse 1, because... Verses 1 through 11 all kind of tie together. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, if there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. And here it is. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind. That's the definition of humility biblically. In lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you also look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, that's how humility behaves in verses three and four. And the example is in verses five through eight. OK, let's pick it up in verse five. It said, let this man be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. And then verses 9 through 11, there's a break in the text, a shift in thought. It's the result of humility. This is therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God, the father. 
Now, this is a foundational passage in the word of God. And so it teaches how Jesus, who he is and how he functioned and how he's the ultimate example of coming to a place of arriving at humility. And so in walking through this passage that we're going to find four expressions of humility that I want you to write down and, and take note of this morning, four expressions of humility found in this passage. And first off, we find this, that true humility is expressed by refusing to demand my rights. It is expressed by the refusal to demand my rights. Now, you, if you ever want to see me get stirred up, just get me in an environment where someone is demanding their rights as a believer. And listen, I'll go from a happy pumpkin to an angry jackalene. I mean, just like that. Amen. And it just it just stirs me up. Someone said, how oh, are you wearing your costume early? I said, I am. I'm a bodybuilder. Anyway. And so if. If you want me to look this this whole idea that I've got rights and I'm going to demand them. Listen, you don't have any rights. You were bought with a price. You're a bond servant. You're a willing slave. And in doing that, when you hitched up your wagon to Jesus, you gave up all of your rights so that Jesus Christ, the fame of his name could be spread. And humility is expressed by refusing to demand my rights. Now, I told you there's a break in this passage Verses 5 through 8 are grouped together about who Jesus was and what he did. And then verses 9 through 11 are kind of because he did that. Here's what's going to happen or the overflow of those truths. But in, in verses 5 through 8, most scholars would say this, that if you want to understand the deity of Jesus Christ and the incarnation, which is a fancy way of saying Jesus took on flesh, then you had better understand this passage because this is the supreme or classic passage on the subject of the incarnation and deity of Jesus Christ. Many theologians went on to even say this. They said uh, you could argue pretty, pretty persuasively that uh, Philippians chapter two, verses five, three in understanding who Jesus is. This is the most important passage in all of the New Testament. Now, so in the first part, we're going to get a little doctrinal. I know that some of you just heard that and you said time to check out for a little bit, right? Just give me something practical. Tell me how to you know, do my money and my kids and my, all those practical things, right? We're getting a little doctor because he, here's just the assumption I'm working on this morning. If you say you're going to surrender your life and follow Jesus Christ, you probably should know a little bit about him. Amen. That as Christ's followers, we should be able to articulate our faith. And if someone comes to you and says, hey, this whole idea, Jesus was a good leader. Jesus was a good teacher. Jesus was a great more example, but he was not God. He never claimed that. You should be able to open up the scriptures and go, listen, let's look together at Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, and find out what the Bible says about Jesus and what Jesus said did for himself and said about himself. It's that important of a passage to understand from a doctrinal perspective, all right? Because everything that you believe determines what you do. And so your beliefs on Jesus had better to be centered around the truth. All right. Now, I'm excited about that. I'm fired up. Some of you, I'm looking at your faces. You're not quite there. So if you are there, say amen. Not bad. We'll take that. We'll move on. All right. Let's look at verses six and seven again. Here's what it describes. It says being in the form of God. Did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. Now, what it's describing here when it talks about that Jesus exists in the form of God, it means that for all of eternity, he's been nothing less than God. That Jesus is an eternal being in the triune Godhead. That when the Bible says uh, in Genesis chapter one, let us make man in our plural image that Jesus was represented there in that statement as a part of the eternal Godhead, God, the father, God, the son and God, the Holy Spirit. 
And so it's describing him as the eternal being. And so sometimes if a, a, your kids ask you, when was Jesus born? That's a trick question. OK, don't fall for it. What they're asking you really is, when did he take on flesh? When did the incarnation happen? But Jesus has existed for all of eternity. John chapter one describes this. Now, he's not a created being, but rather an eternal being. John chapter one describes this. It says in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And he was in the beginning with God and all things come into being by him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. And then he goes on in verse 14, very familiar verse. If you've been in church, it says, and the word became flesh, the incarnation, the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld his glory, glory as the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, in Jesus' day, they had a hard time understanding this uh, Jesus as well. And they just looked at it and said, hey, listen, we know your dad. Do we, do we have your, listen, you're not eternal. And so Jesus encountering those claims uh, it says in John chapter 8, when the Jews challenged his claims, he made this statement to them. It was just blasphemy to them. Here's what he said. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. Speaking of his eternal nature. Now, we could go on and we could preach a whole series about the deity of Christ and the eternal nature of Jesus Christ, and the incarnation and all of those things. But for the sake of time this morning, here's what we need to land on. Mark it down. The New Testament clearly clearly teaches the eternal existence of Jesus and Jesus believed it and taught that as well about himself. So this idea that Jesus thought, well, he was a good teacher, he's moral, uh, he, he's a good guy, he's an example. No, no, no. The Bible teaches over and over and over that Jesus was God and Jesus himself affirmed that truth. You may not agree with the Bible, but you cannot disagree that that's what it teaches. And so when someone comes along and says, hey, listen, I think Jesus was a good dude. Right? He's my, uh, he's my homeboy. I think he was a great moral example. I think his teachings were so wise. But he wasn't God in the flesh. Can I tell you something? That is contrary to what Jesus himself claimed about himself. And hear me this morning. If someone gets up and claims to be God and they're not, that's not a good example. We have a word for that. And the Greek word is this. Nut job. All right? If I got up this morning and said, I'm God, listen, I've come down from heaven in the form of a pumpkin and I'm God, right? No, no one in a sane mind is leaving here today going this. He, that guy's a good teacher. Amen. He's a great moral example. But you know why we do that with Jesus? Because when we come to the fact that we can't reconcile those, because when we come to the fact that if we have to confess that he's God, then we come to a place that we have to recognize his lordship over all of humanity. And that would cause myself to submit to his authority. Listen, but true humility is expressed in a refusal to demand my rights. You see, if there's anyone who could have said, I don't deserve this. Don't you know who I am? If there's anyone who could have answered the question with integrity, who do you think you are, God? And said, actually, I do. It would have been Jesus, right? But the Bible says he was like a lamb led to a slaughter and opened not his mouth. You see, because humility places myself in a position where I'm no longer demanding my rights. 
If there's one negative attribute that's manifested over and over in immature Christians or prideful Christians, it's over and over again flaunting their liberties, demanding their rights, proclaiming what they deserve as a follower of Christ, proclaiming whatever. And any time that someone comes along and says, hey, you, you might want to think about, pray about uh, minimizing your rights in an effort to maximize your influence or maximize your ministry, they're going to push back under the banner of that's legalism. You're not going to control me. Folks, the last time I checked, a doulos or a slave or a bondservant, which is a willing slave, which is a term describing a follower of Jesus Christ, a slave has no rights. You were bought with a price. And the only right you have is to make the name of Jesus Christ famous. See, humility is expressed in a desire or refusal to no longer demand my rights. As a matter of fact, instead of demanding my rights, I should spend my energy looking out for the interests of others. Chapter two, verse four, I should expend my energy instead of debating and demanding my rights, seeking out like a spy or like a scout whom I might serve. According to Philippians chapter two, verse three, humility is expressed by refusal to demand my rights. If anyone could have done it with integrity, it would have been Jesus. But he modeled it when he took on flesh. And humility is also expressed, we find this in verse 7, by a willingness to lower myself, to lift others up. Humility is expressed by a willingness to lower myself, to lift others up. Look at verse 7, what he says there. Listen, I'm preaching so furious this morning, I just tore part of my Bible. So next week, I don't know what we're going to do, okay? It's right down in verses 12 through 18. Look at verse 7. But he made himself of no reputation. Let me just stop there, right? How much of our time and energy is spent in building our reputation, maintaining our reputation, marketing our reputation, ensuring our reputation, cultivating our reputation, spreading our reputation? tweeting our reputation. I've been teaching a series for our junior high and we talked about how technology, we spend so much time through technology trying to cast out an image that may not even be us. How much time do we spend doing that, building our reputation? What does it say about Jesus? Verse 7. It says, but he made himself, an intentional choice, he made himself of what? Of no reputation. You see, there's probably an indicator if I'm going to follow Christ at the level that God expects me to, then one of the things I'm going to have to put in the back seat is my reputation and my rights. It says he made himself of no reputation. Some translations, it says that he emptied himself. The NIV says this, made himself nothing. And so we spend so much of our time trying to make something of ourselves. And the Bible says, in contrast of Jesus, he made himself nothing. You know what? You know what it is when you spend so much of your time trying to build your reputation and, and make something of yourself in the eyes of other people. In Philippians chapter two, it's called vain conceit, which is translated empty glory, a total waste of time. And so the question becomes this, verse seven, but he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. And coming in the likeness of men. Now, here, here's a great question doctrinally. And so verse, verse 6 says uh, that the word form in verse 6, verse 6 says this, in the form of God means this. It means the essential nature and, and same attributes. And so when the Bible says that it is the form of God, it means it's the essential nature or same attributes of God himself. That's what verse 6 means, okay? It describes his deity uh, completely and succinctly right there with that says form of God. 
And so we get to verse seven, it says all, but but it says he he lowered himself. And so did he empty himself of some of his deity when he took on flesh? Did he did he cease to be fully God at that point? Was he kind of like half God and half man? And so kind of what, what's going on here? That's actually what the Bible teaches at all. It didn't change his essence or his form that we examine in verse six. Rather, uh, we find in verse seven, he limited the use of certain attributes and divine privilege. Let me put it to you this way. Verse six says he's in the form of God, same essence, divine attributes, exact same representation of God, not like it, not a shadow, not something that appears to be on the outside. The exact same essence is what form means in chapter two, verse six. And so when he comes and he takes on his flesh in verse seven. He willingly doesn't change his form. He doesn't become any less God, but willingly gives up some of his divine prerogatives for the sake of carrying out the mission that culminated on Calvary. Let me give you an illustration uh, let's let's say that right now we're, we're in the in the throes of political season. By the way, uh, Ohio is a, a busy state if you live in a political season, right? I got 18 pieces of mail and 19 of them were political ads this week. OK. And so we're in the throes of a political. So let's just use this illustration. Uh, let's suppose that a very successful businessman, Bill Gates, uh, for example, decided to run for office of the president. Let's suppose that he's elected to the office. Now, you can imagine some of the ways that a businessman could seize the power of that office as the opportunity to to further some of his own business interests. Uh, he can insist that all government agencies are only allowed to use Microsoft. Some of you here, I just when you, you use Apple, I just crushed you in that. I understand he could punish foreign countries who don't use Microsoft through trade agreements and tariffs and customs inspections. He could use his position to change policy where he could overpower his uh, competition. But when a person who runs for office divests himself of his business interests, usually uh, by placing in some kind of a blind trust, he does so because he doesn't want to. Uh, he willfully gives up some of his power. He doesn't give away what he owns, but he divests himself of some of his power so that he doesn't profit from his position. And so when the Bible says that Jesus emptied himself or gave up some of his divine prerogatives. It wasn't a change of form or essence. It was a divesting of himself of some of his own interests, his own agenda for the sake of submitting himself to the will of the father. You see, humility is expressed by willingness to lower myself. To lift others up. By willing to willfully give up some of my interest for the sake of exalting and serving Someone else in the name and power of Jesus Christ. So what does that look like in Christ's life when he did that? There's all this and we could preach for weeks on all the things he gave up, all the divine prerogatives that he willfully let go of to come down and take on flesh. Let's just focus on one for the sake of time this morning. Can you imagine giving up the glories of heaven to come down to this fallen, sin cursed earth and walk among sinful humanity? Giving up all the splendors and wonders, having a full realization of what we can only imagine when we say, you know, that the eyes have not seen and ear has not heard the things that God has prepared. And we have an idea when the Bible says that he's prepared a place for us, a dwelling place in some translations, a mansion, right? That that we, we just kind of fathom what that looks like. But he walked it. He lived it. He knew it. And gave those up. One writer said this, he said it would be like owning a chauffeur-driven limousine and choosing to give that mode of transportation up to ride a broken-down bicycle. 
It'd be like living in a castle, constantly attended by servants, always having the finest in food and clothing and choosing instead willfully to live in a squalor and poverty in the streets of Calcutta. Now, why would a person do that? Hear me this morning, because humility is expressed by a desire to lower myself. For the sake of serving and benefiting others. And if you're not willing to do that from time to time, then guess what? You'd ask yourself if you've ever hitched your wagon up to Jesus Christ, despite what your profession of faith may be. It's the model of Jesus over and over and over. We see it all the time and not just giving up the glories of heaven. But look at verse seven, but made himself of no reputation. Taking the form of a bondservant. A willing slave, not coming down and taking the form, a rightful form of a king, not coming down as Jews did us at all. What a, polit- a political power this guy can be so influential. No, no, no. Coming and taking the form of a bondservant for your sins and mine. And so humility is expressed in a desire to lower myself for the sake of others. But true humility is also expressed by being willing to endure pain to serve others. You see, not only did Jesus take on the form of a man, not only did he give up the glories of heaven, not only trade a limousine for a broken down bicycle, not only trade a mansion for the streets of Calcutta. But the Bible says he willfully subjected himself to the cross. And can I tell you that aside from the physical suffering alone of the cross, that in society, in that culture, there was not a more shameful death than the cross. It was where outcasts of society were placed out for crucifixion. From the physical aspect alone, nails in your feet and hands, and many have speculated that the nails were actually driven in the wrists. I think there's a good argument for that because the hands would have torn. And so the nails would have been driven in the wrists right next to the ulnar nerve. And so every single time that the weight of his own body is crushing himself, suffocating himself from the own weight of hanging on the cross and pulling up, pressing against the altar nerve every single time, excruciating pain. You know, that word excruciating, it actually literally means out of the cross. And so next time you say, I've got an excruciating headache, you're not even in the ballpark, dude. All right. But take away the physical suffering. Here's what Bible teacher Ray Stedman describes the scene as. He said, Jesus lived under a shadow all of his life. He was misunderstood and opposed by his loved ones all the days of his boyhood. Imagine there was a little jealousy in the house. You know, Jesus's room is never dirty. Jesus never leaves the toilet seat up. Why can't you be like your brother? He lived under the constant insinuation that he was an illegitimate child. When he came to the end of his ministry, he was deserted by his friends, betrayed by his own disciples, handed over to spitting and mocking and to the terrible Roman scourging. And finally, he was stripped naked and nailed to a cross to die as a common criminal in the form of an outcast of society. And by the way, he allowed all that to happen. And he was God. Mark it down, folks. A life committed to the humble service of others will cost you some pain at a point in time. In serving the people you work with, you may be passed over promotion because you didn't self-promote yourself. Sometimes you'll humbly serve others with a genuine spirit. You know what? They'll respond with a sense of entitlement. 
Why didn't you do more? Is that the best you could do? Sometimes serving others causes me to, to divest myself of financial interests. That when God gets a hold of my heart, heart and the Holy Spirit prompts me to serve someone else, guess what? I may hope, oh, open up my wallet. Sometimes serving other people and associating with them and getting down and proverbially or maybe even literally washing their feet. Others will walk by and say, can you believe they associated with those kinds of people? You see, but mark it down. Humility is expressed by a willingness to undergo some pain to serve other people. Welcome to the cross centered life. The verses 5 through 8, I told you the example of Jesus. And in verses 9 through 11 are the results of what he did. And we find there in verses 9 through 11, the last principle, which is this. True humility is expressed by a willingness to submit to the lordship of Jesus Christ. You see, it goes in verses 5 through 8 from the example of what Jesus did for you to verses 9 through 11, what Jesus expects of you. And the person who will not submit themselves to the authority of Jesus Christ is a person who will spend all of eternity in a Christless place the Bible calls hell because of their pride. And I've had people ask me, for what kinds of people will be in hell? Will it be like angry, you know, uh, uh, miscreants? Will it be like these outcasts of society? Will it be these kinds of people? Uh, mark it down. Prideful people. Prideful people. You see, what was the sin that got Satan cast out of heaven? It was pride. He said, I will exalt myself and be like the Most High. Look at Isaiah in the book of Ezekiel. He said, I will be like the Most High. By willingness to submit myself to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. True humility is expressed. Now, suppose that we were betting people, okay? Suppose we were not in the Baptist church this morning. Maybe we were in a, maybe we were in a Methodist church. I don't know, right? To, to, total joke. Just relax, okay? You know what two Baptist people say in the casino to each other? Not a single word, right? Just don't go on. But suppose, suppose we were betting people. And suppose that you had been out of the country the last few days uh, on vacation during the recent World Series games. And you didn't know that the Giants were up two games to one. And you had asked me to DVR that series for you. And when you got back, I proposed that we placed a $1,000 bet on the series about where it stands right now. Would you take me up on that bet? Now, if you would, see me after church, okay? I'm going to double the offering, okay? No, of course you wouldn't. You wouldn't bet on something that has a guaranteed outcome. But can I tell you this morning that if you're here and you're not following Jesus Christ and you've rejected Jesus Christ and his offer of salvation, then hear me this morning. You're betting all of your eternity on a guaranteed outcome. You see, what's that outcome? Look at verses 9 through 11. He says, Therefore God has also highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. How, how, how countercultural is that? That I don't demand my rights. Verse 6. I willingly empty myself of divine prerogative. Verse 7. I take on the form of a bondservant, a willing slave. And God in turn exalts it. See, that's how humility works. That's not the motive, but that's what God does. The Bible says that God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And then here's the guaranteed outcome. And at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Those in heaven, of those on the earth, and of those under the earth. Let me sum that up for you. Everybody. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God 
the Father. Now listen, you know what that's called? That's called a sure thing. That's called a guaranteed outcome. That's called a promise rooted in the authority of inspired and inerrant Scripture. And if you're here this morning, you've rejected Jesus Christ and you're gambling all of your eternity on my good works. I'm a good person. There's a good God, lives in a good place and good people go there. And I'm a good person. Listen, then you're betting against a guaranteed outcome and you're on the wrong side of that bet is what it's describing. Unwillingness to embrace a known truth is rooted in pride, which is the root of all sin. C.S. Lewis said this in mere Christianity. We're almost done. C.S. Lewis said this. He said one of the chief reasons people are unwilling to look up and embrace God is because of pride. Here's what he said. He said pride always means enmity, enmity between man and enmity between man and God. He said, if you come up against something which is in every aspect immeasurably superior to yourself, unless you know God is that and therefore know yourself as nothing in comparison, you don't know God at all. As long as you're proud, you cannot know God. This is great. Here, here's the one line. Here's what he says. A proud man is always looking down on things of people. And of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot look up and see something that is above you. God the Father. Now, you know what verses 10 and 11 actually are? Yes, they're a promise that those who know Jesus Christ will bow in worship to Him one day. Every tribe, every tongue will confess Jesus as Lord. But hear me this morning. It is also a warning for those who are here this morning and have rejected Jesus Christ in salvation. It's a warning. And I believe there needs to be a little more warning and urgency in gospel-centered preaching. You see, in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, there was some urgency about warning people about spending eternity in the place the Bible calls hell. Now, listen, in our churches today, hell really is a four-letter word, is it not? In that decade of preaching, was there a little legalism that got mixed in? Absolutely. Was there fear-mongering? Absolutely. But can I stand and tell you that the person that doesn't get up and proclaim the urgency of receiving Jesus Christ to avoid the wrath of God is a person that loves, loves the praise of people more than the applause of God. And hear me, there needs to be some urgency about the gospel getting out and saving people from the wrath of God to come to those who reject Jesus Christ. Now, you have no idea what you're saved to unless, unless you understand what you're saved from. Jesus isn't the panacea for all your problems. Jesus didn't come so you have purpose. Jesus didn't come to take an okay life and turn into a better life. If you just hit your wagon up to Jesus, listen, people ask you, what are you saved from? You're saved from the wrath of God poured out on all those who reject Jesus Christ. Well, that's offensive. Listen, it's the gospel. It's supposed to offend. You're welcome. If you here don't know Jesus Christ and you're wondering what your eternal destiny is, let me share it with you. The name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under heaven. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. The father. Don't leave this service gambling your eternity on a sure word from God. Don't be one of the untold countless number of people that will populate hell one day under the banner of one day I will. Heed the words of the prophet Isaiah who said, seek the Lord while he may be found. Call on him when he is near. And that's today, right now, 
right here in this place. We've got your bow your heads this morning.